This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 9, Episode 44. This is Writing Excuses, getting into the writer's mindset with Peter Beagle. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And we have special guest star... Peter S. Beagle, who is one of the greatest writers of science fiction and fantasy in our community. Uh, you probably know him from The Last Unicorn, but he's written many, many wonderful stories and books. Um, he is a master of the craft, and we are super excited to have him on the podcast. Thank you, Peter. I'm delighted to be here because I got lost getting here, <laughs> which, is also, which is also a talent I have. <laughs> So when I was preparing this podcast a few minutes ago, I walked up uh, to Mr. Beagle and I, I said, uh, we, this isn't a podcast for aspiring writers. And he stopped me and said, well, they need to drop the aspiring. And I probably need to drop the aspiring because a writer is a writer. So we're going to talk about, as a writer who may not yet be li- making a living at your writing, thinking of yourself as a writer and how to get in the right mindset and a professional mindset. It's crucially important because people get writing mixed up with publishing. And they're not the same thing at all. One is business, the other is creation. And sometimes they get together, sometimes they don't. I've told people, because your book got rejected, doesn't mean it's bad. Any more than because this or that book got published doesn't mean it's any good. (laughs) You should know yourselves. And in the same way, Hemingway didn't say a lot of wise things, all things considered, but he did say something once, advising young writers to pay no attention either to good reviews or bad reviews. He said, because if you believe them when they tell you you're good, you'll believe them when they tell you you're bad. (laughs) Okay, give Ernest that one. He was quite right. (laughs) Um, Peter, how did you, like, starting out, was this, did you get in this sort of mindset very early on, or was this something you had to learn? I was lucky. I was lucky than a great many people. There was a great pitcher for the New York Yankees in the 1930s, Lefty Gomez, who said, when the question came up, if they ever give you a choice between being lucky and being good, take lucky. (laughs) Gomez was good enough as a pitcher to get away with it, but he was quite, I see his point. I, to begin with, came from a family where, well, Art was worshipped. My mother had four brothers. Three of them became painters. I've got a cousin who choreographed musicals like Hair. I've got a a, had, he's dead now, a a cousin who was a cellist with the Guarneri String Quartet. Another cousin who's an art critic, but you can't help that. (laughs) And the thing is simply that these people are my role models for a particular mindset. My Uncle Moses, my favorite, I think, of the uncles, used to say, if the muse is late, start without her. You got up and you had your breakfast and you went to work like everybody else. You didn't give yourself airs because you were an artist. You were a worker. I remember, rather, I cannot remember hearing the word inspiration ever used around the house. And artists, very rarely, as these things go. But... My cousin David, for example, the cellist, did everything you can do with a cello from the age of 17. He did jingles, he did radio commercials, he he played the kind of stuff they play when you're on hold. He was a studio musician, a 
admired him because he knew every jazz musician in New York, and I'm an old jazz buff. And for the last 30 years of his life, or thereabouts, he got to make a very good living playing with the Guarneri. But like my uncles, he was my role model for doing your job. If this is, you can make a life and a living at this if you take it seriously. And so I just, I started writing before I could write. I loved stories and I would make up a story and then get my mother to write it down. And I cannot remember whether I fell in love with words first or story first. Either way, I think it's pretty close. My mother remembered me coming up to her while she was at the stove and asking, and by the way, both my parents worked full time, she, both teachers. But she remembered me asking her about the meaning of two words, gentle and regular. And she told me what they meant, and I went away saying the words to myself to get used to them. Gentle and regular. It only occurred to me many years later that I was probably lis listening to a laxative commercial on the radio. <laughs> they were just words. And, but story, story probably came first, but it was a close thing. Um, and although my mother's family were the artists, for the most part, my father's, my father was the storyteller. And that's what I am. I know that. Um, when I pitched a, a screenplay, a, a gig, a, a, an episode to Star Trek The Next Generation, the professional in me did it because, my God, we need the money. You know, we don't get the, I don't get this gig, I'm not sure what we'll do. It's going to be a bad winter. But the storyteller in me, bloody well seduced, as the story editor I became friends with, Melinda Snodgrass, the story, she said, you literally seduced the four of us sitting there listening to you. I knew that when they stopped taking notes, I knew I had something because they sort of put their pencils down and they were just listening to me tell them a story. I can do that. I got it from the old man. <laughs> and, um, and I bought dinner for my son-in-law my son and my daughter that night before they drove me to the airport to go on home to Seattle. Because that's what I know to do. I was in a writing class at Stanford many, many years ago, over 50 years ago, which included people like Larry McMurtry and Ken Kesey and the writer, Australian writer Chris Koch, who wrote The Year of Living Dangerously in that class. And I remember Kesey asking me, if you couldn't be, if you couldn't be a writer, if you had to be anything else, what would you be? And I didn't need much, much thought. I said, given my ancestry, I'd have been one of those old guys in some marketplace in the Middle East, sitting cross-legged under a tree, telling stories, and stopping at some point to say to the audience, if you really want to know what happened to the princess, a little silver at this point wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Now, my, my answer to that question has always been, if you couldn't be a cartoonist, if you couldn't be a writer, what would you be? And the answer is, I'd be a cartoonist and a writer who has a day job doing something else at which he's unhappy. <laughs> and it never occurred, I think about that often, because no matter how much my parents worried about me trying to make a living as a writer, when I was 24 years old and had married a woman with three children, no matter how much they worried, they never said, they encouraged me, every step of the way, in many ways. 
and it's very much a sore point with my younger brother. In many ways, I was spoiled growing up because I was doing. I had some gift that had to be sheltered and taken care of. You know, something that that you're. I, I'm thinking about that. I know that we all have in common. Actually, is that we have uh, very supportive families. Um, I, I was also, I came from, my mom was an arts administrator, my dad was an enthusiastic amateur musician, so I came through theater into writing. And it occurs to me that not everyone is lucky enough to have that, but that as adults you have the choice of picking people to be around you and that finding supportive people and surrounding yourself with them is one of the important ways of moving from taking that aspiring off because you will surround yourself with people who recognize that you are a writer. I had a friend whose childhood was exactly the opposite of mine. He was a big guy from West Virginia. And when you're a big guy from West Virginia, you play football. Chuck hated football. He hates it to this day. And he'll watch tennis rather than watch football. He'll watch, I've seen him watching golf on television, but never football. In the same way, he lived in horror that his parents might find out that he wrote poetry. Mm. West Virginia hates football, writes poetry. There's only one possible conclusion. And today he runs the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh, where, oddly enough, I went. But basically, it was a sense like being in the closet. You know, he had to keep it hidden from his family, what he loved most and wanted to do. Mm. We're going to stop here and talk uh, briefly about one of Peter's stories. Um, We actually picked one of his short uh, fiction pieces. Um, Peter is a master of the short fiction form, and they have uh, Four Years, Five Seasons up on Audible. Um, Will you tell us just a brief pitch on this story? There's a wonderful online magazine called The Green Man Review, which covers folklore, popular music, literature, singer song, a very wide range of interests. And they've been very kind to me over the years. They devote, devoted a whole issue to me once and pretty, pretty much just took down anything I said in an interview for good or ill. But they asked me, this is the first time, I've never done podcasts, and they asked me if I would write a series of podcasts and record them, one for each season. And the first story I wrote was called The Stickball Witch, which takes place, like all those stories, in the 1950s, in my New York, my Bronx childhood. And this has to do with kids playing stickball on the street. And it's the 1950s, the Korean War is still on, and girls still push doll carriages and play play hopscotch, only we called it potsy. This is the Bronx. And boys, in the, with the spring coming, it starts in the spring, boys play catch and stickball and get into fights for the pure hell of fighting. And this centers around the fact that every neighborhood had a designated witch. Hmm. And it was usually foreign-born, certainly some old lady living alone. And we knew without a doubt that our witch was a real witch, that she hated children when we hit balls, you know, rubber balls, spalding, Rebels, we call them Spaldines. And a Spaldine hit into her yard was there forever. Because you didn't want, you didn't want to go into her yard. A, you might never come back out. And B, you might come back as something else. <laughs> but we knew she's, Mrs. Polyakov was a witch. No question. 
And um, finally, on a double dare, I go into, I'm, I'm the narrator, I go into her yard, terrified, but there is no way out because either you become a witch's afternoon snack or you'd be known, or you're known forever, for the rest of your life, as somebody who turned down a double dare. Oh, you, you can survive, you won't get eaten, but your life won't be worth living, ever. Everybody <laughs> knows that. And Mrs. Polyakov does not give back the, the ball. She insists on playing. And that's what the story is about. And the next season has to do, in the summer, with what summer was like in New York for old people. Um, old people get, get through the winter. Those apartments were constructed in the 20s, and the walls were very thick. It's possible to just go to bed and get through. But in the summer, there's very little air conditioning. People soak sheets and wrap themselves in them, or they go to those movies that actually have air conditioning. But old people die in the summer. And this has to do with a man, my friends, Phil, and Jake and I know, lives in Jake's building, and he knows he's going to die. He's Irish, we were all three Jewish, and he's Irish, retired, um, retired subway engineer, worked on, worked on the IND, and he clearly has a lung problem. He's hacking and wheezing all the time, he drinks too much, he lives alone, and he buttonholes the three of us to say, you know, you know, for little shits, you're not bad little guys. And he has a favor that we have to do. And we've never been in a, a, an apartment um, of somebody who we know is going to die. Um, I'm just staring around distracted by everything, but Phil is already looking for things to paint and draw. He was always the painter, he still is. <laughs> And Mr. McCaslin explains that he's got something to do before he dies. He has to write a letter to his daughter because there's a whole lot that was never said or forgiven or agreed to between them. And it's going to take him a while. It's going to take him three days because he's not much of a letter writer. He's written very few in his life. And meanwhile, we have to keep the black terrier away from him. It took a while to realize he met a terrier, a dog. It's the dog that comes to the McCaslins when one's going to die. The, dog's, the dog always knows. You have to keep that dog away from me for just three days. And I'm uh, actually going to cut yeah, right here because yeah. I do want to do one more yeah. question. We're running a little bit sure. out of time. That sounds wonderful. Howard's going to tell hang me on, about Hang on, hang on just a second. Uh, if you've enjoyed listening to Peter Beagle talk about these stories... You should go out to Audible and get a copy of Four Years, Five Seasons, in which Peter Beagle narrates these stories. They're, they're delightful, and I'm really excited about them. Um, but, Brandon, you've got a question. Um, I, was gonna, I was just going to say, to, to wrap us up, yeah. um, I get a lot of people who seem like they're writers, they're having trouble making this jump in their head, getting rid of the aspiring yeah. and going forward. They'll come to me and say, I just can't quite get started or I, I get like 30 pages in and I, I hit this block and I can't stop. Like what's your best piece of advice for people to jump that wall and take this spiring off their name and, and go pro? The other 
The other phrase that I, I run into a lot is writer's block. I have never been able to afford writer's block. <laughs> I had kids to feed, and I did whatever was necessary. I did a lot of nonfiction writing. Um, never got to do ghost writing, although I would have. Did one as told to back book, but that was fun. But mostly, I find people saying, you show up for work. What, I don't care if it's an hour, I don't care if it's two hours, whatever it is, that is the time you give yourself. A great sports writer, Red Smith, once said, writing's easy. All you have to do is you roll a sheet of paper into the typewriter, that's how long ago that was, and you sit and stare at it. Just sit and look at it until little drops of blood start to appear on your forehead. <laughs> then you're writing. The point, the point I make is that when, when the story's coming, flowing easily, as in those first 30 pages or whatever, that's the easy part. You may edit it later on, but that's the, the delight. The tricky part is staying there when nothing's happening, and you still have to sit there for those two hours or whatever time it was you gave yourself. Because that's really as much a part of the mindset as anything else. Write a letter. Write, write a dirty limerick. But it's like going to the gym. It's working out. The imagination is a muscle like anything else. And it needs, it needs to be taken to the gym. That's, that's most of it, showing up for work. I know people who I felt had as much talent as I, or more, but there were so many other things they wanted to do, so many other talents I felt they had, so many distractions. Maybe it helps to grow up knowing, as I did, there's only one thing in this world you're fitted for, and you better, better do it. <laughs> awesome. That, that was wonderful. Thank you. I'm sorry we're out of time. I could sit here for two hours listening to you talk about these things, but we do have to wrap up. Mary has a writing prompt for us. Yes. I want you to write about someone who is an aspiring something. It can be a writer. It can be sword swallower, cellist, <laughs> dragon slayer, magician, whatever. And write the scene when your POV character transitions from being aspiring to doing. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. Perfect. Big hand for Peter Beagle. Thank you. And you're out of excuses, now go write. And as Samuel Johnson said in the 18th century, Sir, no one but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.